Welcome back to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Excited to be here, excited to be back with you. As always, we are brought to you by NPT Education. Check us out, we got many cool things on our website, many cool resources, www.npteducation.com. Well, we're here and we're on our episode or part two of how to be an anti-racist educator. So as you know, hopefully last episode, we explored trauma-responsive discipline, which as I, I hope you thought the same way I thought, which it can completely change our school or our classroom environment. And it is an anti-racist anti educator practice. Well, today we are going to discover or we are going to explore another anti-racist educator strategy. I, you know, I want to make sure I say this up front. Like, please remember that I am learning right now. If, if you're tuning in here to get an expert opinion, you are in the wrong place. I am learning, and this journey for me is about learning with all of you. Uh, and this learning is fun. This learning is important. But I, I hope you realize that I am in, by no means an expert. And when I learn about these different strategies of how to be an anti-racist educator, I quickly share them with you as I also try to start to implement them in my own practice. So today we are learning learning actually from Cornelius Minor. He is an incredible author, an incredible speaker. His, his book, We Got This, Equity Access and the Quest to Be What Our Students Need Us to Be, is just a great resource. And uh, it's fun to read. It's got a lot of illustrations, but it's also so pertinent to exactly what happens in classrooms. So Cornelius Minor, all credit goes to him from here on out in this podcast, and we appreciate it. I love this quote from Minor, and this ties to why what we're about to talk about today is an anti-racist practice. His quote is, education has done very little to shift power or to distribute it evenly. Rather, it has functioned to ensure that power stays where it has been, among the wealthy, among the men, among the white people. Close quote. Such an important point that education hasn't proven to, to, to truly overcome this, to truly overcome the pitfalls in our society. And therefore, what we need to do, being an anti-racist anti educator, it really means disrupting the system of education that has been built to maintain the status quo here in America. You know, being an anti-racist educator means we need to fight the business-as-usual culture of education. And that's so hard because education is so business-as-usual. But what we're going to talk about today is a way for you to not be business-as-usual. And by not being business-as-usual, it's going to help all of our students because we are going to be anti-racist in our practice. So it's funny, but this, there's two steps today. There's listen and action. Step one is listen. Step two is action. So let's start with step one. First, we must listen. Listening can help us overcome all of this for our students. And I mean truly listening. We need to approach every interaction we have with kids with this in mind. I love this. This is from Cornelius. Where is the poetry in this child? Where is the poetry in this child? What a frame of reference to bring to our work with kids. Instead of seeing what's wrong with the kid, seeing the challenges the kid's going to provide for us, if we just say, 
Let me just work through all that and find the poetry in this child. Where is the awesomeness in this child? And now to listen, to truly listen, to find that poetry, there are three steps. So first, it is actually the act of listening, or more appropriately, I should say the act of hearing. Some messages from kids are clear and they're transparent. Others are really actually communicated through behavior or through silence. So it's not just what kids tell us, it's what we see in them, how they act. Even if they're quiet, what we need to hear, why are they quiet? Why, what, what could that be? And our first step while we're listening is, it's, is, quote, not to judge, not to solve, not to prescribe, end quote. So as we're listening, as we're hearing the different messages kids give us, we shouldn't jump to trying to solve anything. We should just hear exactly what they are communicating with us. And this also means not turning it into how it impacts us, right? So if we have a challenging student or a kid that learns in a different way, we can't immediately go to that place where how this is gonna impact us or how it's gonna impact our class or how it's gonna impact the learning of others. We have to just hear it non-judgmentally, hear the message about the kid. And we can always ask simple questions like, tell me more or how you feeling, or can you explain that a bit? And you know, those will help us hear even more clearly the message. But the point is we must listen, we must hear kids. And, and like for example, in this moment, if a kid is always, let's say you're teaching remotely, if a kid is always showing up late to remote class, that might be a sign of something else that we need to listen for, right? That might not just be laziness, or we might not be able to just put that kid in a label in a bucket of why that kid is a problem. That showing up late might mean there's something else we should be listening for, some other message that we should be picking up from that student. So step two within listening is after we listen, after we hear the messages, we need to do some thinking on our ends. It's our job to now think. We really need to give a name to what we've heard. So whatever the messages we've been hearing, we want to sort of name it. We want to be able to say the messages we're hearing from that student or group of students. We might not have a solution yet. That's fine. But as long as we can name what we are hearing, we are ready to start exploring it with that kid or with that group of kids. This goes beyond just saying things, by the way. You know, responses are sort of what we do and the habits and the rituals, you know, but we, we need to establish habits and establish rituals that respond to what we're hearing from kids. So we share our thinking. We share, how do I say this right? So we share our thinking with kids based on what we heard when we listened to them. So if, if we are getting messages from kids that they're struggling at home, if we are getting messages from kids that they're relationship with their parents is not great in that moment. If we are getting messages from kids that they're having a hard time understanding our contents, okay? We need to share our thinking. We need to take those messages and share it back to the kids. We need to let them know we hear them. And remember, they might not have said these things. They, we might be hearing this message in their behavior or hearing this message in their action or inaction. And we need to let them know. So we're thinking and we're letting them know that we're listening and we're thinking. We affirm it. All right, step three, after we've listened and after we've thought, quote, after hearing and thinking, we must ask ourselves, because of what I've heard, how can I make active and longstanding adjustments to my classroom community, to my actual teaching, and to how the department, grade, or school operates, end quote. So after we've listened, 
after we've named it and done some thinking, now what do we do to change? What do we do to change our teaching in with that student or with that class? What do we do to change? And, and step three is we have to take action. All right, so now we're at action. So we listened. Now we're going to talk about how we take action. It's a tough question. How do you take action? This is a different kind of action than we're used to. Basically, how do we connect the dots between the messages kids are giving us and the content and the learning which we need them to master? So it's one thing to be empathetic and listening to what students are dealing with in their own lives, what their challenges are, what their interests are, what the things they're not interested in are. You know, it's, it's, it's great to have empathy for all of the above. But then the action part is where we take all of that and we connect the dots to the learning in our classroom. So we've listened to kids and we've learned about their interests and what problems they're facing. You know, we've asked them non-judgmental questions to figure out this stuff more. And then all of this now fits with our planning of learning. And this could be planning units, or this could be planning mini units, this could be planning for one day, or this could be planning for one week. But there are five questions that we, when we're, when we're ready to take action, based on what we know about our kids through truly listening, we have five questions we ask ourselves during planning of instruction. That's so key, during planning of instruction. The first three are gonna be very common questions. I'm sure every one of you that teaches in a classroom asked yourselves these questions today, this week, this month, this unit, whatever. Question one, what's the activity I want students to be able to do? Question two, what skills do I need to teach so that they can do this activity? And question three, how many opportunities will I give them to practice these skills? So what's the activity? What skills do they need for the activity? And how will I let them practice these skills? Those three questions are normal. No matter what lesson plan template we use, either in our head or on paper, those three questions are always answered. The next two are different. And this is where we really, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of being an anti-racist educator if we're listening to our students. The fourth question is, what might I say so that what I want to teach aligns with what kids want to learn? How can I connect what I am teaching to what kids want to learn? That's question four. And question five is, how will mastery of this specific skill allow them to live, play, work, exist in ways that are measurably better? So how will what I'm about to teach them connect to their actual lives and their lives getting better? Questions four and five are tough. That is a whole, for me, when I was in a classroom, that was, that, those questions were not really on the table. I loved to connect the learning to kids' interests if I could, but it really was if I could. A lot of time, if I couldn't, I just went forward anyways. But these questions are very different. Basically, to sum up questions four and five, how does this learning connect to students' interests and how can it make their lives better? And as instructors, if we want to be anti-racist, once we've listened to and understood our students and their interests and their challenges and their passions, we then need to break the status quo of education and we need to connect all the learning in our classroom to students' interests and how it can make their lives better. You know, when we plan this way, we're actually being anti-racist because we're disrupting that status quo. Usually teach students have to learn just because we said so. Not anymore. Not if we connect to their interests every time and we are transparent about how this learning can make their lives better. Minor provides a great example of this with a very 
with an activity I think, or, or yeah, an activity that I think we all can relate to. So I'm going to go through the five questions real quick from his example. I think this will really bring it to life for you. What's the activity I want to do? Okay, the answer. I want kids to write evidence-based essays. What skills do I need to teach so they can do this activity? I want to teach them how to evaluate information gained from what they read and choose the most powerful information. I can model and teach this. Question three. How many opportunities will this activity give them to practice this particular skill? Kids can practice this in talking, during read aloud, and we can use partners to discuss and weigh evidence. So clearly through questions one, two, and three, very common lesson. Kids are going to write evidence-based essays. Teachers are going to model how to do this, show them how to gather information and evaluate that information. And then he's going to also have them practice this skill through read alouds and talking. Now we get into the two newer questions. What might I say so that what I want to teach aligns with what kids want to learn? And what I love about this question is the way Cornelius Minor does it is it, now it's actually a quote. So you heard the question, what might I say so that what I want to teach aligns with what kids want to learn? So this is actually what Cornelius Minor would say to kids in this lesson. Quote, I know that a lot of you wish that your parents let you have more freedom. I know that this is going to sound funny when I say it, but most parents want you to have fun. They just want reliable information about what you are doing so they know you are safe. Today, when I teach you how to write, we are going to practice adding reliable information. This is going to make you great at writing and great with your parents." End quote. Such a cool way to introduce this, right? Such a cool way to show them how what you're doing today aligns with the things they want to learn, okay? And the last question, how will mastery of this specific skill allow them to live, play, work, and exist in ways that are measurably better? Again, this is a quote that Cornelius Minor plans in his planning. Quote, in life, being able to communicate your ideas with strong evidence gets you what you want. It does not work every time, but people are always more willing to consider your point of view. End quote. Again, if that didn't click for you, I would almost say rewind a minute here and listen to it again because I think when you hear Minor give the examples and you take that one lesson all the way through, you see how different this is. It's just, it's revolutionary. If kids feel like what they're learning aligns to their interests and it can make their life better, then everything else will change for them. Suddenly they will engage in such a deeper way. You know, it's, I always say it's, there's some kids that just care about their grades innately and they would do whatever we ask just to keep their grades up. And those kids are wonderful, but they're not more wonderful than kids who aren't attached to grades, right? And we need to, if we want to be anti-racist in our practices, we need to engage all of our learners. We need to break the status quo. So in sum, first we need to truly listen to students and understand their interests, their interests and challenge in life. We need to know their interests, know their challenges. Then we need to plan with these things in mind so that students see the value in what they're learning and also see how it can improve their own lives. Man, I know, I know this is a lot easier said than done, but if we really want to be those anti-racist educators, if we want to disrupt the normal flow of education, we need to dedicate ourselves to making our teaching work for every kid in our classroom. Following this process will make a huge difference for your students. There's no doubt about it. Thanks again to Cornelius Minor for clearly outlining this anti-racist instructional practice for us. I love it. 
I highly recommend his book, We Got This, Equity Access and the Quest to Be What Our Students Need Us to Be. Check us out on www.npteducation.com. We have a lot of good resources and ways to help as well. And as always, thank you so much for joining me here at the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Go out there, be an anti-racist educator. The world and your students need you. Because I need a little help.